Well, I wonder what you would say is the most important event in all of human history. Or what are the greatest turning points in all of human history? How about the rise of Egypt with its mighty pyramids? Or the fall of ancient Troy? Or the rise of Athens and the birth of philosophy? The rise or the fall of the Roman Empire, the Mongols conquering China, the Black Plague, Columbus landing in Hispaniola, about the Reformation or the Renaissance, the Industrial Revolution, Henry Ford and the invention of the automobile, or the Wright brothers and the discovery of aviation or the atomic bomb? Could it be that some less celebrated but crucial invention brought about the greatest change in all of human history? How about the invention of the plow, or the wheel, or writing, or money? And who would you say are the most influential people in human history? And he would say Socrates, or Alexander the Great, or Genghis Khan, or Muhammad, or Martin Luther, or Winston Churchill, or Gandhi. Of course, as Christians, we view Jesus as the most important figure in all of human history. And history's decisive turning point is the incarnation, which we just sang about. When God, the Creator, entered His creation, Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a vicarious death. He rose victorious over the grave, and He ascended right back to heaven. But is there more to the story? Is that just sort of a curious story at the center of human history, or is there more to it than all that? And I'm not asking merely about a soteriological answer to that question. Soteriology has to do with the doctrine of salvation. Yes, Jesus came to die for my sins and to resurrect and to give me new life. But if Jesus came merely to forgive my sin and take me off to heaven when I die, has he otherwise just sort of departed from history and just kind of let it go? For many Christians, we are easily tempted into thinking that Jesus is involved in human history so long as he's bodily present. But if he's not bodily present, then he's not really involved. Salvation then becomes otherworldly. It's my ticket to the next world, but it has very little to do with this world here and now. And that, of course, is completely mistaken. And that approach is the Gnostic approach to salvation and to human history. I have defined Gnosticism previously. We will not work through it again this morning. But let's recover a core tenet. According to Gnosticism, the material world, the physical world all around us is evil. If it's physical, it's evil. Spirit is good. Matter is inherently evil. Anything physical is irredeemably evil, according to Gnosticism. For the Gnostic, salvation involves denying this physical world and ascending through mysticism to a reunion with God. 
Salvation involves escaping the creation, leaving the material world behind. And the implications of Gnosticism for Christianity are, in fact, catastrophic, especially regarding the Incarnation. The Gnostic claims that God could never genuinely assume a human body. The Gnostics either denied that Jesus was truly God, or they claim the Incarnation was merely an apparition. It's a ghost. It's not really real. Docetism, from the Greek word dokeo, meaning to appear, was a form of Gnosticism that claimed the Incarnation is an elaborate illusion. Jesus appeared to be human, but he had no genuine human body. And for the Docetists, Jesus' ascension amounted to his abandonment, his leaving behind of his human appearance and returning for good to the spirit world. Goodbye, Jesus. Goodbye, bodily Jesus. He's returned to the spirit world. Now, the early church went to extraordinary lengths to defeat Gnosticism. It was the number one heresy, was the heresy behind all the other heresies that the church labored to defeat. Would you listen to how Ignatius, in his epistle to the Tralians, deals with Gnosticism. Ignatius was a disciple of John, who wrote our gospel. Here's what he says. Be deaf, therefore, when any would speak to you apart from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was descended from the family of David, born of Mary, who truly was born both of God and of the Virgin, truly took a body, for the Word became flesh and dwelt among us without sin, and drank truly, truly suffered persecution under Pontius Pilate, was truly, not in appearance, crucified and died, who was truly raised from the dead and rose after three days, his father raising him up. Are you getting the sense that he's really keen on the body of Jesus Christ? It was a true human. The incarnation that we are now celebrating in our Christmas season involves actually two great doctrines, not one. Jesus' virginal conception and Jesus' bodily resurrection. I had not heard that song that we sang a moment ago before, but I was really glad it had both, right? Virginal conception and bodily resurrection. Jesus entered human history bodily. And he is returning bodily to human history in the resurrection body that he raised from the dead. So, what has Jesus been doing in between those two bodily appearances? We've seen one bodily appearance already. He's coming again bodily, and what is he doing in between? And that is the question that Jesus prepares his disciples to answer in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. So let's return then to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. In John 14, we have reached the very hinge of human history. Jesus is the most significant person in all of human history. 
And we have now reached the crucial moment where he stares down a cross and into the maw of a tomb. He will shortly ascend to the Father's right hand, where he is even now preparing the new creation. Jesus' death and resurrection are going to swing us from the old covenant to the new covenant, from B.C. to A.D. in our calendars, from the Old Testament to the new. And when Jesus ascends to a throne, he leaves to his disciples below the kingdom and the keys to the kingdom. You go preach my kingdom. And the apostles of the Lamb will be tasked with founding the church of God on the chief cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ. And we know from subsequent revelation that the world that was lost in Adam will be recovered to the second Adam as he commissions his disciples to carry forward his mission all the way to the ends of the edges of the earth. The old age of the world, beginning in Eden, will perish, be Eden will perish on a cross. And the new age of the world will emerge from a tomb and will culminate in a new creation. I mean, we really are here at the hinge. This is the turning point. But do the disciples understand all this? And the answer is no. However, as I counted us two weeks ago, don't fall prey for the anachronistic fallacy. We spent some time on that word last time, or two weeks ago. All right? That means interpreting something chronologically out of order. That is to say, don't judge the disciples by everything we now know and we now understand as a result of the resurrection. We know so much more than they did, even in the upper room. Because we have the Holy Spirit of Pentecost shining His glorious light into the empty tomb. And it's like, oh, we see it now. We see it. Here in the upper room, Jesus will put together some of the last pieces of the puzzle. But as it were, in the dark. When the light of Pentecost shines, the puzzle will suddenly make sense. And there is a sense in which the preaching and the teaching of the New Testament is actually going to flow right out of the upper room discourse. In the upper room, Jesus will lay out certain truths that he claimed would soon become clear to the disciples. And when they become clear, they go out and they launch his church. That's what's happening here. So one last time, let's identify three things, according to John, the disciples do not understand at this very, very late hour of Jesus' ministry. First of all, the disciples don't understand where Jesus is going. In chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? In chapter 14, 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? If Jesus is the true Messiah, how can he abandon us now? I mean, where is he going? Doesn't Messiah come to launch Israel's golden age? Isn't he come to usher in the end of the world? Whoever heard of Messiah coming and just leaving in the middle of history? That wasn't clear. Second, the disciples don't comprehend Jesus' true identity with the Father. 
To put it another way, the disciples don't understand the incarnation. Jesus chides Thomas in verse 7 for not knowing the Father through him. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. When Philip asks to see the Father, Jesus rebukes Philip for not understanding who he is. Look at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And thirdly, the disciples don't understand the next stage of Jesus' mission. Certainly, if they don't understand where Jesus is going, or even who he is, how can they possibly understand the great commission that is still to come? And it's this third issue that we are now exploring. What is the next stage of Jesus' mission to redeem the world? And after the cross and the resurrection, like, what's next? Now, don't try to answer that question without a theology of the ascension. And I spent a lot of time on this just two weeks ago to really make sure that we got it right. We are tempted to view Jesus' ascension as a kind of prolonged suspension of his work until his second coming. As if one day he's going to come back and just continue things, right? Or worse, we view it as a kind of prolonged abandonment of the world. to Let it fall back into chaos again until he finally comes back at world's end and puts it all back together again. And friends, that is not a scriptural view of the ascension, not at all. Now, I won't work back through the whole sermon I worked back through two weeks ago, but at this point, let's re-engage our text, beginning with verse 12. Jesus says, John 14 and verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Now in these verses, Jesus is revealing two extraordinary truths. First, the disciples have an enormous mission in front of them. They must continue the work of Jesus. And second, the Spirit is going to come along and help them with this great venture. Now, two weeks ago, we gave a lot of attention to the causal statement in verse 12. Jesus says, we will do greater works. Why? Because he returns to the Father. That's the ascension. Jesus' ascension was his elevation to sit on a throne at the right hand of God. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto him, Jesus says at the end of Matthew. This is all given to a resurrected man 
who now exercises permanent dominion over the earth where Adam failed. Daniel also told us, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never be taken away. That was fulfilled or put in place, inaugurated when Jesus ascended. Now, since that's true, that goes a long way toward explaining the greater works that we now do in Jesus' name. We are not working independently of Jesus as if we had some special power. Not at all. All the power belongs to Jesus, right? He rules from his throne, and we are carrying forward his gospel work to all the nations. Whereas Jesus was confined to Israel, we're going to all the nations with his gospel. And that's the context in which you have to interpret verse 14. Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. When we ask things in Jesus' name, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, the resurrected Christ, guess what? He does them. But understand, verse 14 is not some sort of health and wealth, prosperity, fantasy, guaranteeing us a mansion or a sports car or a prospering 401k. That's not what it means. Verse 13 governs the context. Jesus does the things that glorify the Father through the exaltation of the Son. Verse 14 is a guarantee of the success of the gospel to bring about glory to God. It is an assurance that verse 13 will come true. The Father will be glorified in the Son. Now, how does that come about? Well, there is yet another member of the Godhead involved in this mission. And he will guarantee the success of Jesus' mission to glorify the Father. And that brings us then to our second great truth. The Spirit is coming to help the disciples in their great mission. Look at verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Now, what Jesus is claiming here is that the age of the Spirit is dawning. The Spirit, like a mighty rushing wind, is coming at Pentecost. And when He comes, all the disciples will enjoy the same kind of Spirit filling that John the Baptist and old Simeon back in the temple enjoyed. With the coming of the Spirit comes power to preach the gospel, to experience sanctification, and to advance Christ's agenda to the ends of the earth. The Spirit is coming. And we do greater works than Jesus, not because we're greater than Jesus somehow, but precisely because another member of the Trinity is coming. That's why His presence is not confined to a single incarnation wandering around Galilee. His presence is experienced all over the globe, and He is coming. So through the Spirit, the incarnation of Christ will continue through His people all over the planet. So we had better figure out who this Spirit is. Who is this Holy Spirit? 
Now, we will not treat him exhaustively this morning. Jesus has much to say about the Spirit in coming chapters in the upper room. But at this point, let's observe three initial truths about the Spirit in verses 16 through 17. Three initial truths. Number one, notice the term another. The term another links the Spirit to Jesus in equality. Some actually translate this another of the same kind. Well, that's the best translation. is in fact debated, but the point is the same. Another who can take the place of Jesus is coming because he is of equal standing with Jesus. He's another like Jesus. Such a person is coming and coming soon. Second, notice the duration of the Spirit's help. It's permanent. It's forever to be with you forever. The Spirit will never abandon the mission. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus commissions his disciples to make disciples to the very end of all time, to the ends of the earth. And that's only possible because the Holy Spirit will never, ever, ever abandon the gospel mission. He comes and he comes permanently. And that means, get this, that the same Spirit who filled the disciples to preach the gospel is here to fill us to preach the gospel to all nations. Same Spirit. Same Spirit. And thirdly, notice in our ESV the term translated helper. That same term can be translated counselor or comforter. In Greek, it's the term paraclete. In some contexts, it can actually refer to an attorney, specifically a prosecuting attorney, which is probably not the best sense here. But a defense attorney might convey a little better sense of the term. The point is the Holy Spirit is on our side. He comes along besides us. Besides us, He counsels, he, com- he comforts, He defends. Quite literally, the term means to come right up alongside somebody. The Holy Spirit has come alongside of us. Now, Jesus will leave. And we can no longer walk the dusty roads of Palestine with Jesus at our side. But guess what? There is indeed one right beside us. His name is the Spirit. Another paraclete has come. So who is this? Well, verse 17 identifies him as the Spirit of truth. And if you glance down at verse 26, he is given another title, the Helper, the Holy Spirit. So this is the Holy Spirit. But again, who is this? Well, the Holy Spirit is introduced to us in the second verse of the Bible. And he is seen there as brooding over a dark, watery sphere which enshrines the unformed creation. And he has been there all the way through the Old Testament. He is identified by various names in the Old Testament and right into the New. He is called in Isaiah the spirit of judgment or the spirit of wisdom in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the spirit of grace in Zechariah, the spirit of truth here in John chapter 16, the spirit of life 
the spirit of adoption, Romans chapter 8, the spirit of faith, 2 Corinthians 4, the Holy Spirit of promise, Ephesians 1, and the eternal spirit, Hebrews chapter 9. Just like we need multiple titles, metaphors, types to understand Jesus of Nazareth, the most important person who's ever lived, so we need numerous titles and metaphors for the Spirit. You can't quite capture him in just one title. No single title will ever do to embrace the complexity that is the Spirit. In the New Testament, he is again introduced to us as a... Excuse me. I have this little bit of a... One second, excuse me. I had a cold before Thanksgiving. I thought I shook it off entirely. And since I start talking again, my throat gets very sore. Back to the New Testament. In the New Testament, yes. He is once again introduced to us as hovering over a dark, watery sphere, the maternal sea in the virgin's womb. There's a very interesting parallel between Luke's gospel and the creation account. And there he is enshrining the unformed seed of the new creation. And of course, that spirit was present through Christ's entire life. He came on Jesus like a dove at his baptism. And he follows follows him through to his cross and all the way through to his resurrection from the grave. And now suddenly, the spirit that has been on Jesus all through his life, Jesus says he is coming again. In some sense, he is coming again. And just as he hovered over the old creation, winging his way to the ends of the earth, so too he will fulfill the disciples' mission to send them to the ends of the earth because he cares about his creation. But again, who exactly is the Spirit? Well, the term spirit comes from a Hebrew word, the Hebrew word ruach, which is equivalent to the Greek word pneuma. And those words can be translated wind, or life, or energy, or power. If there's a tremendous hurricane blowing in, you would say that was a great big ruach, a great big wind blowing in. The term holy refers to God's uniqueness, God's separatedness, God's moral distance from his creation. And when you put those two terms together, they speak of unique power and purity. Unique power and purity. But is that all there is to it? The Holy Spirit is just some force? Just some wind? Just some powerful energy? Well, when you actually read the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is more than just a force. He is always assumed to be a unique person, another person like Jesus. And I'll say more about the personality of the Holy Spirit in coming sermons. But for now, let me just ask our question once more, who is the Spirit? And I keep putting the question to you that way on purpose. Who is the Spirit? Because I want you to look at how verse 17 is worded. And notice how it's worded both in the present and in the future tense. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it either sees Him nor knows Him, as if He's totally unknown... 
You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Is that a little bit confusing? On the one hand, Jesus speaks of the Spirit as if his disciples speaks of the Spirit as if his disciples already know him. On the other hand, he seems to be referring to a future coming of the Spirit. A future when we are indwelled by the Spirit. So, which is it? And that does indeed raise a very interesting question about the role of the Holy Spirit in human history. What exactly was Pentecost all about if, in fact, the Holy Spirit has been there from the beginning of the story? This has been a somewhat confusing question for people. What is Pentecost all about if the Holy Spirit is way back there in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2? Let's see if we can't sort this out. Jesus says, you know him as if we already know him, but in some sense we will know him in the future. What can this possibly mean? Well, in the Old Testament, we are told certain things about the Holy Spirit. First of all, the Holy Spirit is involved in creation. That was true in Genesis 1 and verse 2. It's true in many, many passages in the Old Testament. Likewise, the Holy Spirit is involved in conviction. Genesis 6-3 tells of his striving with sinful men before the flood. In Psalm 139, David says, Where shall I go from your spirit? In Isaiah 63, 10-11, the prophet laments, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Well, how can you read that passage and not conclude the Holy Spirit was operating in the Old Testament? Isaiah wrote about him. Of course he was there. The Holy Spirit was also involved in giving prophecy. You see this in Numbers, 1 Samuel, Ezekiel. The Holy Spirit was also involved in granting to people artistic skill. Exodus 31, he granted people skill to build the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit also enabled administration. The Holy Spirit was also, are you ready for this? Involved in conversion or spiritual regeneration in the Old Testament. Now, some have actually, in my estimation, been quite mistaken about this. They view conversion as, sort of, as a sort of New Testament phenomenon, as if the Holy Spirit starts converting people to the New Testament, but not in the Old Testament. He came at Pentecost, and that's when he began converting people, but not before. But what you have to do is follow two New Testament passages very, very carefully. Listen to these two passages. In John 3, Jesus spoke the following words to Nicodemus. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So clearly, to be born again, you have to be born again by the Spirit. Spirit regeneration is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again by the Spirit. There is no other way into the kingdom. That is what Jesus explains to Nicodemus actually before Pentecost. Now that means that if somebody is in the kingdom, he or she has been born again of the Spirit. Right? If you're in the kingdom, you've been born again of the Spirit. There's no other way in. All right? Okay, if that's true, listen to Matthew 8 and verse 11. Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with who? With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So who's in the kingdom? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You recognize where those people are from? Old Testament saints? How'd they get in? Well, the only way in is to be born again by the Spirit. So how'd they get in? They were born again by the Spirit. So clearly the Holy Spirit was regenerating people in the Old Testament. So when you put all that together, it sure sounds like the Holy Spirit has been there all the way along. So why does Jesus introduce the Holy Spirit to us in the upper room as if he's some new person still to come? Well, actually, that's not precisely what he's doing. And this is where people can misunderstand Pentecost. Jesus says at the end of verse 17, both you know him in the present, and yet he will be in you in some future sense. And again, we'll explore more of this as we get further into the Upper Room Discourse. But Jesus is essentially saying what you know in very general terms is going to become a whole lot clearer. What you know very vaguely will become personally clear. For an analogy, would you think back to our work in Exodus several years ago when we looked at the term Yahweh? God introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush as Yahweh, the great I Am. This is my name, I ain't remember this name forever, he said. But he introduced the name as if they'd never heard it before. But curiously, Yahweh had indeed appeared to the patriarchs and used that name, but he says, by my name they didn't know me. Well, how can that be? Well, here's what we discovered. In Hebrew, names have major significance. Names mean something. When Moses met Yahweh, he asked something like, what does that name even mean? Like, I've heard this obscure name. What does it even mean? That name doesn't mean anything to us as of yet. Yahweh had yet to reveal the power and the meaning of that name. But that is all about to change when he rains down destruction on Egypt and delivers his people from the iron furnace of slavery and delivers them right up to the foot of Mount Sinai. Oh, that's Yahweh. You've made your name known. We see. You're Yahweh. All of a sudden, that abstract name becomes full of meaning. It becomes potent with meaning. God revealed his name through his actions 
in human history. And that is precisely what happens in the New Testament with the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Sure, he's been there all the way along. He's been there from the very beginning. He's been active all through the Old Testament. But suddenly, we are going to discover the power and the person of the Holy Spirit in a very decisive way as we've never seen it before in all of human history. If the Exodus was a revelation of Yahweh's name in the Old Covenant, then Pentecost is the revelation of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. Does that make sense? This is what Jesus is now saying. The Holy Spirit is clearly the active, the potent, the personal power that is coming. And he is going to launch that burgeoning history of the early church in the book of Acts. In fact, if you read the book of Acts very carefully, you'll notice the Holy Spirit doing all kinds of things. He gives the apostles the power to speak in tongues. He enables them to preach. He resists sin. He's involved in the conversion of the Samaritans. He converts Paul. He converts Cornelius. He separates Paul and Barnabas on the mission field. He directs Paul and Silas while they're on the mission field. Again and again and again, the Holy Spirit is just driving the whole story forward. Luke also demonstrates that when the Holy Spirit comes, the numbers just grow explosively. You've got 3,000 converts after one sermon, 5,000 converts after a second sermon. After that, Luke just stops numbering. It was a great multitude. We just lost count of them all. The Holy Spirit is working all the way through the book of Acts. And as soon as we get to Pentecost, it's like, oh, now we understand what Yahweh means. Now we understand who this Spirit is. He was there all the way along. Now we understand. So when you put it all together, the Holy Spirit is about to make himself known in a very personal and powerful way. That's what Jesus is promising. We are talking, friends, about a God who acts in human history. Yahweh acted in the Old Testament. Jesus incarnated himself into human history. And another comforter is coming, and he is going to be with us right through to the end. So once again, if that's all true, let's raise the whole question of the most significant event in all of human history. For the Jew, the Exodus, or the Passover, is the greatest turning point of all. In Jewish history, they look back at the Exodus, the Passover, that was it. I mean, that's the turning point. And that's when Yahweh suddenly moved heaven and earth and drew them through a wall of water and planted them in the promised land. But friends, that's just the prelude. Jesus shows up in Jerusalem while all the Jews were busily preparing for the Passover. And suddenly he says, from now on, eat this Passover meal in remembrance of me. Sure, you can think about the Exodus, but now eat this meal in remembrance of me. And Jesus just keeps on insisting right through the upper room that he is one with the Father. Yahweh himself has made himself known right in the context of human history. And Jesus now tells them he will go to the Father and prepare a way home for us. A whole new exodus out of the old creation and right into the new. And on top of all that, Jesus now introduces a third person. He's been there all the way along, 
but we are about to experience His presence and His power in a whole new way. This is why I say we have reached the turning point. Jesus has come into human history, and Jesus has resurrected to rule all of human history. And when He did so, He sent another comforter to come. And right up to the present hour, we are still living in the age of Pentecost. We are living in the second chapter of world history. The Spirit has come to brood over His creation and to make all things new. So, what does this really then mean for us? Again, we have much to learn about the Spirit in coming sermons. But for now, can we just project ahead momentarily and really just apply this to our lives in the coming week. I want us to simply notice three references by way of application, and we'll be done. All right, when the Spirit comes, what is He going to do? Well, look at verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. Now, I have spent several years preaching through Jesus' words in both Matthew and John. And on numerous occasions, people have made comments to me after a sermon or during the week about things they learned or discovered in the text. And in many cases, they comment on things that I said nothing about. It's actually a little bit humbling, like, oh, I missed that. I'm glad you saw that. I miss a lot in the text, and we all do. But there is a more important teacher. And when you see things you never saw before, what's happening? That is the Holy Spirit. He is your teacher. Skip ahead to 15 and verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Spirit not only speaks the truth, but he is a particular witness to Jesus Christ. He does not have his own agenda. He will magnify Jesus in your heart. So, friend, when you find yourself increasingly convinced about who Jesus is, and you find, in him, you find yourself loving him more and more, that is the Spirit. That's what's happening. The Holy Spirit is raising Jesus in your own estimation, in your own heart. I actually can't produce that in you. I wish I could. I can't produce that in you. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And now look at John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world of concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the Spirit is involved in our conviction. Negatively, He convicts us of our sin, and positively, He convicts us of what is righteous and true. So can you put these three truths together? In a moment when we go to prayer, can we ask the Holy Spirit to do these three things for us? All right, Ask the Holy Spirit to illumine truth for us. Spirit, be my teacher. Help me understand the text. Secondly, ask the Spirit to exalt Christ in your heart. Ask the Spirit to heighten your affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, ask the Spirit to convict you of your sin. 
And these are three great ways to pray for your family. I prayed these three things for my children this morning. Pray for the Spirit to illumine. Pray for the Spirit to exalt Christ in your heart or their hearts. And pray for the Spirit to convict us of sin. Can we take a moment and just do that? Let's pray for the Spirit to do these three things for us. Father, we come to you with gratitude for the sending of your Son. At this time of year, we celebrate the coming of your Son. But Lord, truly, we ought also to celebrate the coming of your Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that he illumines truth to us. And I pray that Christ's words and the text before us today would truly instruct everyone in this room, believer and unbeliever alike. And I pray secondly that Christ would be exalted in our hearts through the work of the Spirit. May we love him more. And I pray, Lord, that he would convict us of sin. And as we prepare our hearts for communion next week, I pray, Lord, that we would allow the Spirit to work and to convict us of our sin and to prepare us, Lord, to come to your table ready to receive. We thank you for the work of your Son and for the work of your Spirit and for the work of your great and holy Trinity. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.